Um, all right. So top five breakup songs. What are yours? What are mine? Either of you. Uh, oh, I should have thought of that coming into this. That was foolish of me. I'm, I'm sorry. It, Brett is already familiar with my pop quizzes at the beginning of the episode. I just like to to surprise him like pocket sand. Yeah, I'm never see ready. What he, see what he comes up with. No, you, and I wouldn't expect either of you to be ready. But I like the question a lot. I, that's that's partly why I chose this movie because that sort of question is my jam. Um, let me think. Top five breakup songs. It's been a long time since I've broken up with anyone. <laughs> yeah, it's been about a decade for me, too. But I feel like I still remember how it feels. Uh, for me, I feel like I'd have to have on there It Must Have Been Love by Roxette, just sure. for the sheer drama. Uh, also, you know, you got to have, at least for me, Unbreak My Heart, Tony Braxton. Oh, that's very good. Just really like light the candles and feel that that sadness. Um, and then also, if if I were to be like Rob, if I'm going to be a hipster, uh, I also really like the magnetic fields. And sure. there's a song on uh, 69 Love Songs. Oh, I'm sure Rob loves that album. He um, definitely does. <laughs> but uh, Epitaph for My Heart, beautiful breakup song. I um, that's sparked my my brain a little bit. Thank you for going first. I I think this I'm going to sound real either I'm either going to sound pretentious to people who don't know or I'm going <laughs> to sound real basic to people this who do. This is a movie for pretension. That's fair. Uh so I'm going to go with Never Meant by American Football. Um that one that gets me every single time. Uh oh, there's a song by Rainer Maria. What is that one called? Uh, it's off one of their older records. Let me look it up. Oh, uh, Always More Often by Rainer Maria. I don't know if it's technically a breakup song, but it's definitely, uh, it's it's a song about not taking any crap from anybody who's ever wronged you in the past. So that kind of fits, I think. Um, man, there's, I, oh, I want to think about this more because that's a good question. Well, maybe you can you can provide some answers as we go through things. What about you, Brett? Uh, I, I don't have the the musical library that you guys have. <laughs> when it comes, I, maybe I would say something like "Twinkle Twinkle Little Star," something that <laughs> brings me back to my childhood. Something well, that that is Mozart, so it's you know yeah. you're not you're not too bad. Something that I could like fall asleep to, crying. You know, lull me to sleep. It's comforting. Brings me back to better days when I had no responsibilities. There's no breakup <laughs> song in your heart. Uh, no, Twinkle Twinkle Little Star. That's all I got. All right. Well, ooh, uh... <laughs> anything by Mom Jeans and anything by Modern Baseball. I'm just going to go s solid emo across the board. Mm -hmm. I think that works. It's a it is a mood and an era. All right. Well, let's let's start the show.
this is Necromancer. 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 Yeah, I like that. I, I like the echo effect, like we're at the Grand Canyon. Uh, I'm Shira, and I'm a fan of romantic comedies. I'm Brett, and I'm a fan of horror movies. I'm Nick, kind of- and I'm not really a fan of either one. You don't like either romance or horror? I like comedy, so I that's 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 where I fit in here. But romance, I find to be usually too either too silly or not relatable or, or, or just kind of over-dramatize a little too much. And horror, I'm a big scaredy pants, so I can't, <laughs> I can't watch horror movies almost ever unless they're real, real simple and basic. Uh, so, Brett, you had actually told me a little bit uh, uh, before this episode that you and Nick shared an experience around this. Uh, can you guys tell me more about that? Yeah, so Nick and I went to middle school and high school together, and 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 one of our friends, Murphy, at the time, it was senior year of high school. He was like, he was doing pranks on Nick, right? Like, I don't know, I don't know all the pranks. That, oh, a lot of them were real good. They were very pig oriented, extremely pig oriented. He basically <laughs> would get an image of a pig like at any opportunity that he could like on a piece of paper he drew it in the snow on my car a bunch of times he he gave me lots of pig imagery and that was that was fun i liked that one yeah it, uh, most of the pranks were were harmless stupid pranks that you would pull on a friend if you were just uh, just trying to get a laugh out of it and to be fair this one also is harmless but i didn't appreciate it <laughs> Well, so then, you know, I, one day Murphy comes up to me and says, hey, I want to do a prank on Nick. And I'm like, OK, I'm, I'm all for pranks. Right. And then he's like, OK, I want to go. I want to tell him that we're going to go see a movie. But when he gets to the theater, we're all going to be there to see Dawn of the Dead. This is the Zack Snyder remake of Dawn of the Dead. Is that the one where they're in the mall? Mm hmm. And so. I told Murphy right away, this is a bad idea. <laughs> I was like, I'm not going to spoil your prank, but I don't really want to be part of it. <laughs> and so then all of a sudden it comes to the day of, and, you know, again, remember this is like really before cell phones, before all that stuff was popular. So it was like, Nick was running late to the theater. <laughs> And then <laughs> Nick gets there. And I, I don't know if, if you can take over from here, Nick, but the the <laughs> the thing is Nick got there a little bit late. So everyone else had already gone inside to get our seats. So I was the one who had to meet Nick. And you had already bought theater. my ticket. And yeah, we had already bought his ticket because it was like opening night. So it was packed. So you led like, the lamb to slaughter. You did. Yeah. So I had what to were we be going the, to see? The, I can't remember. Me neither. The notebook? Um, well, we were going to see Dawn of the Dead. I don't know what you were going to see. <laughs> um, but yeah, then then Nick, you showed up. And it, from what I remember, it was just like the the shit cherry on top of the shit Sunday. Yeah, I, I had had a bad day. I don't remember why, but I was already coming about in. Drumming, something about like a drumming a gig. 
uh, like I don't know. I don't remember. I we were teenagers, so it was probably <laughs> nothing. But at the time, it seemed like something. And uh, yeah, and then I, I show up, and I'm told that that's what we're seeing, and that puts you in such a spot because <laughs> you don't want to wuss out in front of your friends, so you have to go. You had planned on hanging out with your friends that evening anyway, of so course. you want to go. But then you're told that the thing that you're doing with said friends is a thing that you in a million years would never do and have no interest in and are going to thoroughly not enjoy from top to bottom. So what I don't I, I'm sure I had a choice, but I feel like at the time I didn't have a choice and I had to go and watch this entire movie that just scared me. What was scarier, the social pressure or the movie itself? Oh, man, that's a good question. Obviously, the social pressure, because I succumbed to it. It's the real horror. Yeah. If the movie was scarier, I wouldn't have seen it. So that's I guess that's how that went. (laughs) Well, so also, but everyone else was already in the theater by the time you got there. So it was just me. And it was like you you exploded at me. And I was like, I know, I know, I know. Like, but you're part you of the problem. Gotta, you gotta go in there and you gotta sit it out. And then I think it was, I think on your end it was probably just like, you know what, as soon as I sit down, I'll be okay. But then I, I do remember there was a part in the movie when someone gave birth to a zombie baby where you conveniently left for the bathroom and didn't return for like 20 minutes. <laughs> I don't remember doing that, but that sounds right. Yeah. And as soon as we sat down, I had to be the buffer between you and Murphy. And I just remember it was so satisfying though. Cause you gave him the, the most solidest middle finger right to the face. <laughs> <laughs> He was uh, like, "What? Like, you know, just, like you, you can't describe it to anyone else, but you know, if you know Murphy, it was like, what? Yeah. Oh, uh, he just, I, he just played it off like he yeah. absolutely didn't do anything wrong. Sounds like exactly uh, what a character named Murphy would do. Yeah, but they, he earned that name. That's he, his name is being protected for for his own <laughs> safety here. But that that's a nickname that." He he earned, I think, because it it really fits him better than his real name does. I think. It, yeah. <laughs> I I like that a lot. I you know I'm so I'm so conflicted because on one hand I I really feel for you, Nick, and your hatred of horror movies. But I would also be somebody who would get enjoyment as a teenager out of a prank <laughs> like this. Yeah, I mean, I'm all for a good prank. Brett, Brett's maybe the king of pranks if I've ever met one. But oh, we didn't uh, know this about Brett. This is new information oh, for the podcast. He's very, very good at them, and I'm all for a, a good prank. And I don't mind being the butt of a prank, but I don't. I just don't <laughs> like to be scared. That's my only line. But yeah, Brett's yeah. Brett's a great prankster. One that I still talk about to this day, um, frequently. Actually, it's <laughs> shocking how often I. I bring this one up. He, we were, he had a party at his, his parents' house. Uh, We were maybe like 22 or so. Um, And I being a young hotshot jerk, I commanded that Brett go get me a beer. I don't really remember how I did it, but I'm sure I like, I can go get my own beer, but I made Brett do it. So he goes to the kitchen and I'm hanging out and talking to people and, he comes back and hands me a beer in a, in a, you know, in a brown glass bottle as they normally come. And it's opaque enough that you can't see into the bottle, but he hands me this, this open 
brown beer bottle and I take a big swig and it- yeah, well, no, 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 no. I, I, I had it, I had it placed on a napkin and everything to make it more like butlery. And you oh, are very suspicious. Right. You are very suspicious. No, you added some flair. Right. And so you, you had me take a drink first. <laughs> That's right. And I happily took a drink. Oh, like the Princess Bride? Like... Yeah. <laughs> and there was, of course, nothing wrong with it. And Brett enjoyed his sip. So then I took a, I took a drink of it. And it was the most disgusting flavor of a beer that I had ever had in my entire life. And I spit it out. And Brett, like, collapses, like, as if all of his muscles contracted at the same time, he collapses into a heap on the floor with the biggest smile on his face. And I go, what is that? And in in a strained voice from how happy he was, he goes, it's milk. <laughs> oh, gross. Like, there's nothing wrong with a glass of milk, but if you're expecting beer and you get milk, that is so far off from what your taste buds are prepared for yeah oh i i don't even really drink milk i i don't i don't understand it i know brett you do um but yeah yeah. huge cereal fan Uh, top five cereals go reese's puffs number one hands down best sugary cereal number two cinnamon toast crunch number three frosted mini wheats stand by it um and then maybe number four, Pops. And number five, um, Fruity Pebbles, because you can put that shit in anything and make it better. You know, don't shake a stick at, uh, at Cheerios, just regular Cheerios. They get the job done. They do. They do indeed. So you don't like to be scared. You <laughs> don't. don't like romance. Um, I, but- I don't mind romance, but just most rom-coms are kind of boring, mm-hmm. I think. Well, most rom-coms aren't from a guy's perspective, but That's this one fair. is. That's <laughs> fair. This one is. And I, I don't want to get ahead of ourselves here, but <laughs> a rom-com from a guy's perspective 20 years ago actually translates to a pretty toxic movie. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we will definitely get into it. I have things to say uh, about that for sure. And, you know, to be honest, just to, to jump ahead a little bit, I don't even think that the Hulu series necessarily fixed this by making Rob a guy. I mean, as a guy, Rob as a character is still pretty problematic. I mean, or as a as a female, Rob is still pretty problematic. Um, I, I didn't watch the Hulu series, for one, because I think it's a dumb thing to remake that. Yeah, it that didn't need movie. to be remade. Yeah, who was asking for that? And for two, I, yeah, the, the whole like... If if your entire premise of remaking anything is just to change the gender of a character, like I have no issue with a, a female lead, but I need you to do something more than just that. You know what I mean? Like it has to be something new. I agree with that simply because I just think that there are so many stories, so many original stories to be told. And it's like, why? I mean, not to shade Kristen Wiig and, and female ghostbusters i mean i'm sure they worked really hard and and it was but i would rather see something new than a female ghostbusters like give me a female paranormal team from a writer that's doing their own story rather than just doing ghostbusters again or high fidelity again but this time rob's female it you know it i don't think it's it's 
like I think a lot of stories are rehashes and and this story is no exception, but I mean, at least, you know, there there's room for for more stories to be told. But I'm curious to know why why this movie for you? What what does this movie mean for Nick? Well, this this was my favorite movie for a while. Um it 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 really spoke to me when I first saw it because the like obsessive collector culture as well as the obsessive music fan culture was was and is a large part of of who I am and so that aspect of it like really made it feel like a movie that was for me the the like general plot and uh how rob approaches romantic relationships and things like that was never something that i related to but i related to every other aspect of of his life and his friends that um that that i was able to kind of ignore the actual main plot of the movie in favor mm-hmm. of what the characters were like outside of the main Uh, a plot of the film and also it's very very funny once you ignore all of the ways in which it's horrifying Mm -hmm. uh but it's like jack black i think that's his best role that he's ever had funny Uh, i wouldn't i don't know if i think that's his best role like he went on to do school of rock which is kind of barry 2.0 um (laughs) you got you got to have a whole movie of barry action um, but, uh, he is just so like, he just outshines everyone in every single scene. Yeah. Yeah. He really more than, than Rob or Dick, I think he embodies what it means to be the like asshole music collector who knows more <laughs> than everybody. Like he is, he, Rob and Dick are too calm with their, uh, looking down on people that like, I don't know any obsessive music collector or any obsessive anything who can calmly respond to people the way that those two characters do. But the way that Barry does is a hundred percent accurate. If you see somebody who either knows less or is actively like just either being wrong or like just not appreciating the things, the way that you appreciate them, it's, it, the default is to go full asshole. The default is not to just quietly look down on people. So he's, oh. that character is so accurate, I think. Oh, go ahead, Brett. Uh, I also think like probably part of the appeal is uh, being younger and working in customer service. Just that idea of like that Randall clerk's idea of mm-hmm. getting to yell at any customer for any reason and just tell them to, fuck off yeah. like that's so satisfying <laughs> i never made that connection before yeah. i love clerks too that's that's one of my favorites of all time as well and i that never occurred to me that those two had that in common but that's oh, absolutely they're totally, right. totally related one because i hadn't seen this since since i probably you had me watch it in chicago uh but dick is elias from clerks too all grown up Oh, interesting. Yeah, that makes sense. Ah. Yeah. 
very awkward, very quiet, very meek. Yeah. I, I Probably recovering from a traumatized I for him. I like Bell and Sebastian, and my partner, Doug, reacts to Bell and Sebastian exactly the way that Jack Black does, which is, <laughs> what the fuck is this? Turn it off. It's too sad. I hate it. <laughs> <laughs> the old sad bastard music. Yeah. <laughs> I, I I do relate it. Right? So I before I forget it, I have to ask you guys then, so if if really it's like the, the kind of the world building of the movie that's really appealing, and I, I get that too because I was a little old sad bastard and I was like, nobody will listen to the shins with me. Ah, like, you know, like I, I definitely had my moments or like, oh, who's going to go see Lady Tron in concert? I don't know anybody. <laughs> um but uh, have either of you either been high fidelity or have you high fidelity your exes? Define the verb of high fidelity. High fidelity. Okay, so, so to, to high fidelity would be to have a what does it all mean moment and then try oh, to contact right. your exes to find out. Ooh, I think everybody's thought about doing it. I don't I don't think actually, no, I think I probably have like in college i think i did that with like high school girlfriends uh, because you're when you're in college you f- you think you're not a monster anymore the way you were in high school but you're all, you're just more <laughs> of one and you're more capable of doing more damage so i'm i'm certain i did in college but i i'd like to think i haven't since then <laughs> what about uh, you no i don't think so <laughs> Uh, no, <laughs> I I believe that from you. That doesn't seem like a breath. Uh, I, I'm I I've always had things end pretty amicably. Uh, before COVID hit, I was supposed to go down to Rochester for the first time in a very long time, and I was thinking about all the people that I could get in touch with, and I was like, you know, one person I would like to get in touch with is like one of my first girlfriends. But I didn't know if that was weird. And then COVID hit and I was like, whew, I don't have to tackle that situation. It's I mean, that is that is I, I do feel like I'd like to reconnect with people from my past, regardless of what the relationship was. But, yeah, there is that weird yeah. line where you can't because you, you're like in your head, you're only going to talk about like what things used to be like for the two of you. And, you know, it's like there's no. What else? What other conversation is there going to be apart from remember old times? And I, the yeah, last time I was in Rochester, I drove around uh, after hanging out with a buddy downtown. I I was on my way home, and I was like, I'm just going to drive around our our neighborhood and our town, and just like look at my friends' houses that I remember. And I know none of them are there anymore. I do that but, stuff. Yeah, it just like that's like a safer way to exercise those demons than to actually approach the people and like hash it out um but it still made me feel real weird just like looking at a house that probably is owned by some completely different people at this point <laughs> but i don't know it just it seemed like the right thing to do at 1 30 in the morning <laughs> i don't know sometimes it is I, I, there's there's definitely something appealing about that i i feel like i've been more the charlie in a couple of situations <laughs> where uh i've been on the receiving end of uh people's uh high fidelity quests uh and in some cases i feel like it's gone well like uh one of them he ended up showing me portal 
And I'd never seen that game before until he showed it to me. And then I ended up playing it and then playing Portal 2 later with my partner. So, you know, I, I, it ended up being a good experience because, well, I got Portal out of it. And then in an, another case, it was like, uh, like what, what is the point of you contacting me? Um, it, it's clearly like one of those things where like you're trying to exercise some demons and, you know, it just made me want to roll my eyes. Like, I, I don't even know why we're having a conversation um, when it's been like five years or 10 years. Um, but, but yeah, I feel like there is something like in everyone, like you were saying, that thinks about doing something like this, but not everybody is respectful of boundaries. Yeah. Yeah. It's, there's a, an extremely fine line between catching up and bringing people down. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, let, let's get into the quest. Let's get into high fidelity. Uh, Brett, you want to help start us off? So, yeah, uh, we start out with Rob Gordon, who is a record store owner, a horn dog, and one very sad boy <laughs> because his girlfriend, Laura, just broke up with him. Aw. So the, we got this gimmick of this top fives top fives gimmick all throughout the the movie which i think is really cool and if they were talking about top five things that that i knew stuff about i probably would like it more but uh they they go into top fives and the first top five we get are his top five breakups of all time and this is where the movie immediately falls apart for me (laughs) like third line the movie reels me in like i he breaks the fourth wall it's like oh ferris bueller's all grown up uh and it's john but it's relentless only john could do this i don't know uh i don't find him charming enough to carry on an entire movie of ferris buellering um he all of his breakups are like he kisses allison three times and then that's in his top five breakups? Like, is this a guy who sleeps around a lot? Because if so, like, what he considers boyfriend-girlfriend is very questionable. <laughs> and uh, I, what I relate to this. Like, I hooked up with a boy for a while in high school, and then he stole my underwear and never called me again. I feel like that's definitely a top breakup. Like, you know, like these, you got to remember right. what it was like. Yeah, it's ranked in terms of pain. It's not like that the relationship itself was significant, but did it hurt? And your first like rejection of that nature sticks with you for your entire life. I don't know. Exactly. I, I or he's just really petty like I am. The, the fact that everything is from his point of view and that like we don't learn anything about these women... He's an unreliable unreliable narrator, for sure. For sure, he's an unreliable narrator, and that comes into play later. He's an unlikable narrator. Well, I mean, that too. Uh, uh, So then we get that to be likable, to be fair. Right. And I think it's important to to note this this movie is practically shot for shot uh, recreation of the book, except that the movie's in uh, Chicago and the book is in London. Nick Hornby, um, right? Yeah, and and a lot of the dialogue is directly ripped from the book. Um, 
but the the ending of the book is different than the ending of the movie in that the, <gasps> the book the book ends much more sadly for Rob than the movie does. The the movie has um, this whole aspect at the very end where he essentially gets back together with Laura. He's successful with creating the the um, record label and having the show with Barry. None of that happens in the book. Um, and I think that that is why the book is arguably a little bit better because this despicable character doesn't win in the end. Usually I'm against a bummer ending in romance and in horror. I think, you know, despite all the spooks and scares in horror, you really do want to see your main character prevail in the end. And it's the same in romance, but I would argue that this movie would have benefited from a bum, a bummer ending. Absolutely. Especially as it's aged and not aged well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can see I, I can also see the idea of like, you know, reading a book is a much different pace and, and vibe than watching a movie. And if this movie ended on a bummer ending, it probably would just make me hate it more <laughs> <laughs> instead of just going like, all right, yeah, the character gets a happy ending, whatever. Now I don't have to worry about it. Uh, but number two, number two on his all time top five breakups is Penny. Penny was his uh, college girlfriend, high school, high school, college. He did Penny dirty. I will say that. Yeah. Uh, high school, yeah. And that was so, yeah. not great. No. So, yeah, they, they kissed a few times, but then she wouldn't let him go all the way. So he broke up with her. And this is like, yeah, this is what you're saying, Nick. We're like, yeah, this character is clearly meant to be an asshole, unlikable. But... I, I don't know. There's got to be other characters that I can think of that are unlikable while still being likable. Because, like, in this moment, yeah, he's a kid. He's he's a teenager. Of course he's going to be a selfish jerk. But then he just keeps being a selfish jerk his whole life. Well, I feel like, um, I mean, I don't like Wolf of Wall Street, but it seems like that's... I do. Ugh. <laughs> that is a character who's like that, where he's consistently unlikable throughout the whole movie, but then has somehow become like the basis of a million memes. <laughs> yeah, but that's different too, right? Because in the movie, he's supposed to be unlikable, but then a whole crowd of people watched that movie and went, no, that's exactly who our idol is. We want to be just like him. That's the same so for like Scarface too. Like that character yeah. is supposed to be despicable from top to bottom. It ends with him getting loaded with a gazillion bullets. And instead of looking at that as a cautionary tale, that movie got celebrated more than almost any in history. So like for some reason, like once a decade, we get a movie where the character is explicitly awful and we all love him for it. That's definitely true. I'm trying to think of instances where that's the case with a female. Oh, man. I can't think of one off the top of my head. I mean, one of my favorite movies is Serial Mom, and it's just Kathleen Turner murdering people for an hour and a half while looking like an amazing housewife. Uh, <laughs> and and I love her for how terrible she is in that movie. Or um, there's a movie She Devil with uh, I think it has Roseanne and Meryl Streep in it, and they're both terrible. Uh, or uh, ooh, or Death Becomes Her. That's another one where Meryl Streep and Goldie Hawn are both terrible the entire way. And for 
for obvious reasons, I was going to say for whatever reason, but we all know why they don't become the icons that Scarface became and that Wolf of Wall Street became. It's it, you can have a despicable female character, but they don't reach that status where every dorm room has a poster of them. Right. You're not going to see like Angelina Jolie's Maleficent next to that uh, Red Hot Chili Peppers poster (laughs) with the what is it like? Is it is it the they have like the one where it's like the naked chicks at the pool and then there's the other one where they're all wearing socks. I feel like I've seen that on like 15 different people's walls. That checks out. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So then we already talked about it a little bit, but then we get some some more record store scenes, which mm-hmm. is nice because then you start to meet Dick, you start to meet Barry, and yeah, like immediately, I don't know what it is, but Jack Black has got it. Oh, his <laughs> his opening scene is genius. Oh. Yeah, I love it. Um, his first line is maybe his best line, and I'm not talking about where he says words. I'm talking about where he's walking in, playing air guitar, going. <laughs> that's all you need to know about him he was doing that outside as he was walking down the streets of chicago <laughs> into his job he was just loudly singing an air guitar <laughs> i love that i also loved when i mean so he turns off seymour stein old sad bastard music puts on walking on sunshine <laughs> the most relentlessly positive song in existence and then when they want him to turn it off he's like mouths it won't go any louder <laughs> I, I love that uh so great um so continuing the top five breakups, I don't know the names of these characters anymore because I watched this with Sonia. So we were just, you know, how you give characters your own names when you're watching them with people. You can say so the actor's get, names. Uh, this isn't the actress's name, but we get to number three, who is Laserbutt. Uh, if you guys, uh, Sonia has never seen the movie Entrapment. So I enlightened her to the Catherine Zeta-Jones to the Laserbutt scene in Entrapment. That was a hot uh, scene. That was a hot scene. Lasers and butts. Uh, you think the whole movie was about that. That's the only thing anyone remembers from that movie. It's not not about that. <laughs> uh, and so, so yeah. So, uh, essentially, Rob has put Laser Butt on a pedestal. And he thinks she is just the greatest thing in the entire world. She is a heavyweight. And he is a middleweight. He's just waiting for the day for her to break up with him for someone better than him for someone better looking than him uh and yeah i don't know if you guys have anything that you want to say about laser but i do like the line this is like a classic you know just like toxic male line when he says charlie you fucking bitch let's work it out <laughs> I, I wrote that down too like <laughs> Uh, this movie's a monologue on male fragility. It re- yeah. Oh, big time. This, uh, oh, yeah. At this point, I probably wrote down in my notes uh, the, the mustache-twirling villain who puts a damsel in distress on the train tracks, where it's like, uh, you know, those old cartoony villains where it's like, I'm going to kidnap you and make you my wife, and I'm going to be happy. I don't care about you. I don't care how happy you're going to be, yeah. but I'm going to be happy. <laughs> uh like that's that's who this character is he's just like i'm going to put you in my tower and 
you're mine now, so I'm happy. Uh, it doesn't matter to me. Oh, I have a question for y'all before I forget. Is there any scene in this movie where John Cusack sits on things normally? Like, he has to jump over everything he's about to stand <laughs> behind or sit on? Like, he never walks around the counter to to be behind the counter. He always has to jump over it. And he does the same thing with any chair he sits on, too. In the nine million times I've seen this movie, I've never noticed that. But given that it was filmed in the 90s, it or in 99 specifically, I think, um, that makes a lot of sense. Not sitting on things <laughs> yeah. correctly is a very 90s thing to do. Yes. No, he's, he's a Gen Xer through and through. <laughs> uh, number four on our top five breakups of all time is Mama Conjuring. Uh, the mom Lily from Taylor. The Conjuring. Yeah, Lily Taylor. And so they basically were just two people who didn't want to be alone and spent their nights together so that they wouldn't be alone. And then she found someone, quote unquote, better to be with. She found someone else. And so then he was all alone, alone. That relationship, I would like to see a movie of just that relationship from start to finish. Because I think that's a really interesting thing to explore. This, like, we're both sad, let's be sad together. And, like, happiness comes from our shared sadness. That, that to me, is a, a somewhat unexplored, much more interesting take on romance in general than, than what we actually get out of it in this movie. Oh, have you seen the movie Sleeping with Other People with Jason Sudeikis and Alison Brie? I have not. So that movie has that aspect where they had sex in college. Uh, so they'd all, they've already fucked. Uh, and then they meet again as adults and they become friends and kind of bond over their shared misery. Uh, and then, of course, drama ensues because it's a romance. I have to oh. check that out. That is, that's definitely a more, at least more realistic if if nothing else in that relationships are weird and complicated and never as straightforward as we normally get to see so this is a little tangent but i genuinely 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 absolutely love the moment in mission impossible 4 when <laughs> it all comes back to tom cruise for me i love tom cruise so much you guys when tom wilkinson says the words Ghost Protocol. Like, if you're an action movie fan, Ghost Protocol is such such nonsense. But it's so, it's just like, it's so fucking cool. Like, you just hear the words Ghost Protocol and you go, oh, yeah. Stuff. <laughs> and so I will say, the, the, the Ghost Protocol moment of this movie is when Dick comes over and Rob is organizing all of his records and Rob, and Dick goes, how are you organizing them? And Rob goes, autobiography. Yeah. Like, oh, <laughs> that is the hipster moment. That is the hipster moment. Truly is the scene that I connect with more than any other in the entire movie. Because at the time that I first watched this movie for the first time, I had my albums organized all three of the ways that they were describing. Because <laughs> I had them alphabetical by artist. Within an artist, I had them chronological uh, in release date. 
Um, but I also, for my entire life, I've kept a running list of the order in which I've gotten all of my albums, um, which I'm up to somewhere in the mid 800s at this point. And so I have a running autobiographical uh, list as well. So I, I simultaneously have all three of what he's described. And I know the utter joy that you can feel from an autobiographical organization. My Spotify list right now, when you click into artists, is by when I've added them to Spotify, not when, not uh, alphabetical, not any other sensical way of doing it. I have to remember what time I first looked them up in Spotify in order to properly play them. That is so satisfying, so satisfying. And I cannot explain why, because it is incredibly inconvenient to myself and others. I don't know. I, I have never felt that way, but I do love, I mean, well, Spotify's UX sucks ass and they really need to improve it. But um, I think Spotify is hands down better than any app. If you're a music nerd, if you'd like to make playlists, if you like to follow other people and look at their playlists, it's just like, and it's the only music app that's fixed the classical music catalog problem that every music app has, which is whether to categorize things by performer, yes. by composer. It's yeah. it's like a, it's the whole mess. I could go on and on. Um, but I do understand that part, like the joy of having all of your music organized in the way that you processed it or became into it. Yeah, music is a very personal thing. It's there there is no good or bad. Of course, I'm not I don't agree with the sentence I just said, but there is no good or bad music because if it's good to you, it's good. And it's important. I know a lot of people who disagree with you. <laughs> oh, I don't agree with myself at all. But if, if if it means something to you, you remember where you were and when you were when it came into your life. And so to be able to look things up that way makes it that much more personalized uh, when it's already an extremely personal experience. Do you guys do you guys smell things when <laughs> when you listen to music that is old? No, can you guys you like smell? smell your surrounding? What do you smell when you listen? Well, to there's music? like there's a specific Gorillaz album that came out when I lived in. I did a, an internship in Florida for Disney, and so like when I hear those Gorillaz songs, like I can smell the Florida air mm. as opposed to Chicago or Texas air. There, I I know what you mean. There are a couple of yeah. of albums that um that put me specifically in sixth grade uh, like i mm. i can remember being in homeroom in sixth grade having that on my discman and like that i don't know that i smell it but i definitely like feel the like the very specific feelings you have as a sixth grader it's just such a such a specific feeling that you don't have before or after that time in your life that like is a combination of like panic and fear and excitement and boredom at maximum levels for all four of those things. <laughs> there are just certain records that put you there. When you actually when you when you guys talked about it, I do think like there are certain things like uh, whenever I listen to the Clash, it makes me remember living in California. And I mean, I don't know if I think about California, I think oh the oranges, the the hibiscus smells, suntan lotion, that kind of thing. 
Um, but yeah, definitely that too. Certain songs, certain artists just bring you back to a certain time in your life. Yeah. And in, yeah. in ways that are like kind of primal that you like, that just thinking about that time doesn't do it for you. Right. Um, yeah. So we move on to a mom call. Of course, we get a mom call that's pretty much stressing the fact that uh, Rob has got a ticking clock. He's not going to be young <laughs> forever. He's got to get married. He's got to do the the normal thing. Uh, but Rob goes to a bar. He hates Peter Frampton, but it's okay when it's a sexy lady. A <laughs> uh, I thought it was interesting how, like, seeing seeing uh, Barry and Dick interact with Lisa Monet in this movie was so interesting because, like, they're obviously such two losers in the movie but then like rob is also a loser in the movie but rob gets to be the cool guy by association because rob is pretty much like quote unquote infinitely cooler than those two guys when it comes to interacting with other people um so i just thought that was an interesting dynamic that really shines through yeah the two of them really do fanboy out in that scene and rob keeps his cool yeah uh we get great moment with liz uh who is a mutual friend between laura and rob and liz drops the fact that there's another guy we get introduced to ian uh, i feel like that line of who the fuck is the ian guy <laughs> yeah uh i don't know but by that point he had lisa monet and then like he just he's he's so obsessed with laura i don't know you can still be obsessed with your ex while you're pursuing that, people it's true but all right so then we get to top five breakup number five is jackie that's revealed to just be a petty little revenge slot to keep laura out of the top five but congratulations laura you now made the top five this is where we also get into like rob says four things about himself that are shitty shitty things and four very good reasons why someone might break up with you oh these are great reasons to break up with them and then like just the way the character says it and stuff where he's like first of all and then he goes into excusing all four things and it's like of course it's not his fault but it's just like when he said first of all it just immediately put me you know what i mean like again i don't know the difference between an unlikable character and an unlikable, unlikable character and an unlikable, likable character. But this character just is unlikable all around. I think it's really like John Cusack's charm and his kind of ability as an actor and the way that he seems kind of in on the joke that Rob is a shitty person. Like, I don't think another actor could have played it as smartly as he does. And I do like the part where he says, I wrote it down. I fell for it because she's much smarter than me. (laughs) <laughs> yeah he's yeah. definitely not I, I do think john cusack does a lot with with the character um in like the subtext of how he plays the role i i think while the movie and and perhaps the direction uh doesn't really successfully portray that he sucks as a human being i think cusack at least does his best to to relay that to the audience but it's it's subtle enough that it's not that you really have to be looking for it to find it. Maybe it's a, yeah, maybe it's a calibration issue on my end, but also maybe that explains why my favorite 
John Cusack role is the sniper from Grand Piano, where he plays a bad guy. Because, <laughs> like, all right, yeah, John... killer a few times. Yeah, uh, uh, but yeah, so it's not his fault. He's doomed to be rejected. Uh, I totally get that sort of self fulfilling prophecy of like. I'm going to make my own life miserable because then I'm ha- I can be happy complaining about how miserable I am. Yeah. Uh, the movie that I would relate to that more with though, is probably taxi driver where like Travis Bickle goes out of his way to be a lonely boy. And then he's always complaining about how alone he is. Someday a real rain's going to come. Real rain. Uh, and so, you know, stuff like Drive, I like, I like, te- Drive is basically like oh, Taxi God, Driver. I find like, Drive insufferable. Oh, I love Drive so much. Uh, <laughs> I thought it was fine. And, We've got the whole spectrum. Uh, but then we we kind of get into, I don't know, is this, this is probably what the actual uh, show is about, which is him meeting his old exes, right? Like, right. that kind of becomes a, like, I, th- I thought that could have been more tokens. of a, yeah, what's your number with Anna Ferris? Go meet the old exes and stuff. Uh, we've got some kids who rob the store, and then John Cusack catches them, and then I, I don't get the musical references, but apparently the, the punk rockers have Sir taste Jake in music that you wouldn't expect. French pop. Um, yeah, they like weird, yeah. obscure, indie European stuff. Yeah, so it's it's nice that I, I kind of would like to assume that he lets them get away with it because he's like, oh, like this is your taste in music? Like, all right, yeah, I guess you guys can can take this. Um, but then we get more stuff. The, the biggest thing that I hate about this character is when he says, "I ha- can I ask you a question? And she goes, sure, one question. And then he goes, you're not going to like it. Like, Fuck you, dude. Uh, <laughs> like, uh, so then basically Laura comes over and he's like, oh, I'm really sad. And then she's like, well, you know, there could be a chance that we get back together. And he's like, a chance? We are the champions. Yay. I'm going to go fuck Lisa Monet. And then he basically goes into this whole scene about how he calculatedly yeah. traps he manipulates Lisa her. Right. He invents a sensitive man. I feel like this is, this does speak authentically to what I've known some of the more mercenary ways that men talk about um, flirting and, and getting with women like, Oh, it's all just like, I it's a mission. I act act this way to get this thing. And it's like, uh, I don't know. It, it, it's definitely a certain type that, is authentic to a particular type of guy for sure but it's okay because lisa monet is like a hippie and she's like she knows what she's, she's getting through into. it she's yeah. through it. she's she's not fooled by his bullshit which she's is infinitely cooler than him. aren't yeah. yeah her her final line in that whole exchange as they part ways he says he'll call she says right and that, like, right. she knew I loved the whole it. time what was going on. She had no right. no misgivings about what was going on. Um, then we get the dinner party with Laser Butt, and <laughs> and uh, and it's interesting because, like, uh, the the word that I used, I, I think you guys could probably pick up on it, is probably a little more triggery and and maybe a little bit more 
appropriate for for the character in this movie but as soon as everyone leaves the party and then he starts talking about why why did you break up with me <laughs> uh i told sonia i was like this guy is a conversational hijacker uh like anytime someone starts talking about something he just immediately is like no this is what i want to talk about and it's all about me um he's so unfair to charlie he's so judgmental like uh charlie is happy her friends are blah 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 and it's like who are you to judge who are you uh and so then we get some more stuff uh some more character type development with dick dick has a girlfriend it's the roseanne lady and it's very cute and Barry wants to sing he wants to be in a band and it's very clear based on his based on his persona it's very clear that whatever he does in music it's not going to be good at all you guys i think that's very clear and there will be no shocking surprises or developments chris uh one scene i did like is the top five dream job scene where laura shows back up and then she's like oh uh yeah one of your dream jobs like architect you don't even want to be an architect like you want to be a record store owner why is that like it's okay to like the thing you're doing yeah she really yeah it's what we see for the entire movie which is that he sets up a world to allow himself to feel miserable and then feels okay because he feels miserable in that world. When in reality, he's done something great that he loves and isn't willing to recognize that it's a great thing in his life. Yeah. He's, he's not like he, he, it almost feels like he should be punished. Like, you know, his record store is purposely out of the way and it's not, you know, even though there's that one scene where they're really busy, like, Pretty much all the customers that come in there, they kind of are half the customers. They just shoo away or treat like shit. And then, yeah, he's like, I got this little record store, but it's just my little record store over here. And he doesn't really take pride in it. Like, he just is like, I'm fine skating by. But she really kind of puts him in his place. And it's really cool. Uh, I think just to touch on his store... um that you mentioned that it's it's out of the way that is actually located in the heart of the wicker park neighborhood in chicago which in the year 2000 um maybe wasn't as happening as it as it has become but by the time brett and i moved to chicago in 2010 that was one of the hippest neighborhoods in the entire city so uh, there's a fun subtext if you think about what his future is in in that specific location the store selling vinyl in wicker park he would have made frigging bank as long as he just yeah. stays there. So he actually right. should, in theory, in beyond the, the point of this movie, he should become wildly successful. Extremely wildly successful. Yeah. Um, so there's more moping. There's more, there's more sad. But then Laura's dad dies. Wait, wait, wait. Is- you missed one of the best scenes, in my opinion, the best scene in the movie when Tim Robbins comes into the record uh, store yeah. to confront uh, John Cusack and he fantasizes about all the ways he's going to confront him but yes. doesn't. Uh, oh God, it's so funny. I especially like the part where he imagines Dick throwing the telephone. Oh, so good. Tim that was great. And oh, his my teeth God. fall out like chiclets. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
uh, they just start beating the shit out of him. I thought that that was hilarious. And then I also just, the casting of Tim Robbins as oh, the Bellamy yeah. as the other guy is yeah. so perfect because he's just this six, five freak beast with a ponytail. <laughs> it's simultaneously to me, wonderful, perfect casting and maybe the worst casting job in the history of time because He's, he stands out in that movie like a sore thumb so much where you're like pulled completely out of the movie and you go, oh, Tim right. Robbins, that's that's weird. He doesn't really do movies like this. He seems completely out of place. But he's like supposed to seem completely out of place because he's so completely different than Rob. It's I, I go really back and forth on whether I love that casting choice or not. Oh, I love it. I thought that he hammed it up in that scene. And then it, when Rob is is uh, having his like nightmare about Laura and Tim yeah. Robbins having <laughs> sex and he's like, ah, blah, blah. <laughs> it's just, I, I thought that he, you know, he went he went all in it. But I can see that like, um, I know Tom Cruise is Brett's boy, but I, I feel like Tropic Thunder would have been fine without the stunt casting of Tom Cruise. It's, it would have been. It's a dice roll when you when you cast somebody who's yeah. bigger than the movie that they're in. Uh, it it can either take the audience completely out or it can put them at ease because they know and understand what they're getting into. I don't know which. Uh, I think it works in this case because Tim Robbins is a is a likable guy in that regard. Like he, as an actor, he's uh, as far as I know, he's considered pretty well liked right i don't know if he's ever been me too'd or anything not to my knowledge um so then laura's dad dies hooray for rob because that means he gets to connect with laura again you're so mean uh i did absolutely there could have been more of it but i did absolutely love the scene where uh, John Cusack's own sister berates him <laughs> and yells at him and is like, we are talking about someone else. We're talking about Laura, you know? Yeah. I Just like the one too. apology would do. Like, yes, put him in his place. So he sa- he says he apologizes to Laura and then he he just leaves without expecting anything else, without trying to hit on her. So this is like that typical male fantasy thing of like, now that I'm finally over you and I'm I, and I'm saying goodbye and I'm saying I'm sorry and I'm not going to try to hit on you. Now she's all like, fuck, yeah, let's get into it. I want to fuck. Yeah. So they get back word, together. Now I'm fine and I'm fine in your eyes specifically by saying a single word. I fixed everything. Right. Just so then they go. But what right. about breakups and death that make people in this movie so horny? <laughs> That's a great question. Uh, so th- then, I mean, the, the the ending happens pretty fast, but basically they get back together. A pretty lady likes Rob and Rob likes pretty ladies and Rob likes sex. So there's this whole thing about the cycle's going to continue and that this pretty lady who's going to interview him is going to be his new fixation. And he's making like her stereo a- lab. Yeah. And so he's going to make I her like a mixtape. Actually. <laughs> And it's and then basically his whole I love you scene, his whole you complete me scene is him telling Laura, yeah, I'm I'm too tired to try to sleep around on you. Well, she and then she goes too tired to break up with him. What? She said that she was too tired to, to break up with him. Ultimately, 
at the end of the day and he's too tired to sleep around. I, I guess they're compatible in that way. So, yeah, That's they're compatible. Being too worn out to try any harder. Uh, she pushes him <laughs> yeah. to have a record party. <laughs> right? So she does the thing where like she she makes the plans for the record party and he's like, I could never do this. And then it's like, oh, actually it's good for me. So Laura's good for him. And Jack Black sings and he's amazing at it. Nobody knew he was Jack Black. No one. It's it's great when he sings. Uh, and then, yeah, and then he's going to make a mixtape for her. And that's how the movie ends is like he's not making a mixtape of his own thoughts and feelings. He's making a mixtape of for her in her thoughts and feelings very nice it's a nice way to end the movie yeah he demonstrated character growth within the last 30 (laughs) seconds or so yeah (laughs) pretty pretty much so uh any any final thoughts on this movie before we get into uh to give you some background nick we like to always ask each other at the end of a rom-com who we would kill from the movie so i i thought about that and i i went on to write way too many notes about turning it into a horror movie so i don't know that i necessarily want to reveal that because i i think who i would kill is is everyone that i have listed in all my horror version notes but i am curious do you like who would i personally kill or who would i have killed in the movie yeah who who do who do you just want to die from this movie Honestly, uh, Tim Robbins' character is is so like that type of person is so much more fake than any of the other characters are, and everybody the in the guy. Is fake. they're all so <laughs> fake and surface level nonsense people. But like, I I if you're going to be fake, I would rather you be fake negative than fake positive, and he's so like. It's just there's something so slimy about being so over the top positive all the time. There's nothing wrong with positivity, but there's there is a certain thing of like toxic positivity where it's unacceptable mm-hmm. to be anything but positive. And I feel like that's what his character is like. If he if social media was more was a thing at the time that this was created, he would be the most performative, like just getting on board with every cause type of guy without actually doing anything about it. He's so despicable, I think. Yeah, he's totally that type. What about you, Brett? Well, just to just to mix things up a little bit, I'm going to kill Jack Black in the movie. Oh. Oh, Barry. No, I'm going to tell you why. Barry. Because there's a scene where a guy comes in and he wants to buy this record. He didn't like that Jack Black dangles it in front of him. And then he goes to sell it to the other guy for no reason other than he just doesn't like that one guy. And I thought that was so mean. We don't really know the background of his relationship with that guy, though. Well, I don't care. I thought it was mean. (laughs) I'm judge, jury, and executioner. So (laughs) I'm going to kill him. Fair enough, Judge Brett. <laughs> How about you, Shiro? Who would you... Uh... 
Oh, Rob, Rob, hands yeah. down. I I think that Laura deserves a chance at a real equal relationship. So Rob's got to go. Got to go. You know, I don't I don't want to blame her here, but at the time that they met, he was a DJ. Don't date a DJ. Don't date a DJ. I agree. I agree on this a hundred percent. Ever date a DJ. So I'm really curious to hear your horror remix of High Fidelity. Well, I'm I'm excited about it because I think in the modern climate, I think it it works much better than the, this movie did at the time that it came out. Um, I I want to start by saying I had two ideas, and I was gonna go with my first idea until I realized that it would be kind of boring. But I still think it's fun to to just give a elevator version of it. Um, the first line in the movie is what came first, the music or the misery? We answer that question uh, by basically having the, <laughs> the plot of the ring, but with a song that makes you so depressed that you kill yourself. And like Rob goes around and playing this song for people and they start jumping off bridges and stuff. But then I didn't really have any other ideas. So I didn't expect <laughs> that at all. And Ooh, I have very suicide club. Yeah. Yeah. I, it seemed like for one, it seemed like I couldn't really think of any scenes that apart from just everyone killing themselves. And for two, it seemed too derivative. So I didn't, didn't bother expanding on that one. Um, but I thought it was a fun idea. So my, my actual version that I expanded on too much is that, um, it's practically the same movie, except that he exercises his demons by killing the each of the women instead of by just talking to them. Um, Gotta go. Yeah, that's that. If we're gonna have a toxic masculine character, let's go whole hog with it, and let's make the the actual like message of the movie not one of celebrating toxic masculinity or of of at least pointing out that it's okay let's go fully in the opposite direction and make him the despicable character that he is in the farthest sense that we can um so like the first half of the movie is essentially the same maybe we would tone down some of the the comedy a little bit but um Let's let me get my get into my notes here because I there's a lot of details I don't want to skip. Um, so the opening scene exactly the same. We don't know yet that Rob is is listing out all the people he's going to kill, um, but we're like literally line for line identical, um, especially where he points out that Laura is not on the list of the top five. So he's we think. He's just going to be killing these these five people, um, like Steve Buscemi and uh, Billy Madison. He's like, ah, yes. don't have to kill that one. Yes, exactly that. Um, and so then it, it proceeds mostly the same um, until we get to uh, number three on the breakup list when he's still reminiscing and and like just recounting what his past was like. Uh, we see the flashback of him screaming up to her at her apartment in the rain. 
Um, and this is the first moment we get a glimpse of, of the madness within him. Um, if you do basically the same scene, but add some sinister music um, and show the same kind of imagery, like the being in the rain, screaming after the phone call is over, he just like grabs his head and screams in the rain. This is this is where we start the journey toward becoming a full on madman. Um, oh, like he does in uh, being John Malkovich. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's oh man, he's been crazy in a lot of movies. Um, so then we have uh, the scene where Barry asks Rob if Laura let him leave the house in that Cosby sweater, which by today's standard now carries a whole new context that it didn't have in the year two thousand. <laughs> So that's I would keep that line exactly the same. Um, and then Rob in in the original, of course, uh, like sort of tackles Barry a little bit. I think he should pull a knife on him um, and like play it off like kind of like it's a joke. Um, and and like they're able to reconcile that he, of course, wasn't going to stab or anything or cut him. Uh, but this does sow an initial seed of doubt in Barry that becomes important later. Um, and if I'm going too fast, or if you want to jump in here, go ahead, but I've got a lot more. Oh, I'm a hundred percent following it. And I yeah. like this development on Barry. Yes. Barry, Barry has a bigger role in this, uh, in this version. Um, so then there's a line when Rob is cleaning his apartment where he says, I used to dream about being surrounded by exotic women's underwear forever and ever. Um, and following this line, um, in the original, he starts reorganizing his record collection, but in this version, he actually does like pick up all the underwear that he finds around the house and like lays on his bed and surrounds himself in them. Like think a la Buffalo Bill, but like turn it down from a 10 to like a three. Uh, Ooh, I love it. And then he, while doing that, reflects on number four on his breakup list and we go into that flashback. Ooh, one question. Would you put a needle drop on this sequence? Like, you know how the Buffalo Bill scene has goodbye horses? Ooh. I, I wouldn't use the same song just to not be so on the nose. But I do think that the, the full soundtrack of, of this entire thing would have to be revamped. I like the soundtrack of High Fidelity a lot. But all of those songs create a tone that is too lighthearted even the sad songs are are too lighthearted um so we do need to get some new tunes in here i'm not sure off the top of my head what would be good for this scene but it's got to be something something like itsy bitsy spider (laughs) perfect (laughs) twinkle twinkle yeah it's like like he's a spider he's setting a trap it's very sinister that's a good breakup song um yeah so let's see, where were we? Dick sees that Rob is obsessively reorganizing his records. Um, and uh, Dick actually will, of course, relate to this level of madness, both in the original and in this new version. Um, and so from this, we now get an understanding that that Dick is maybe just as crazy, while Barry isn't, as we established earlier. So now we kind of Ooh, have I love an it. angel and devil on each shoulder that we can explore later on um i didn't really do any other notes about that but i think that all the remaining scenes with dick and barry can kind of play off that dynamic uh when he's organizing his records is he doing it by the date that the artist died 
I hadn't thought about that, but that might be tough if a, a large bulk of them are still alive. <laughs> that might no, I mean, just throw them in the alive bin. <laughs> There's one bin of alive. <laughs> Everything where it's a dead artist goes on the shelf, but he just chucks all the ones where they're still living. I'm good with that. <laughs> um, Rob's phone call with his mom. Uh, this, this I wrote down could feel like the relationship between Carrie and her mom, um, like super abusive. Maybe uh, lets us learn a little bit about why Rob is so awful with women Love and do women. Um, so that kind of helps, especially since that's the only case in the original where we see Rob's mom. So let's make it mean something more by by making her super duper abusive towards him. And she probably has this full backstory of being abused too. It's just a cycle of abuse. Um, then Joan Cusack says, I don't think much of this Ian guy. That's the official trigger where we see Rob completely change into the killing machine that he's he's going to become. He just absolutely snaps. Um Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde Park. Yes. Oh, look at you with the Chicago joke. Got you it. Got, you got Chicago jokes. I like this. I like this. Uh, <laughs> that should be the name of it. Um, he mentions that his number five breakup was a fake and that Laura's actually number five. And he says specifically the line in the movie is number five with a bullet. And this is foreshadowing. This, oh. is, this, is, this is going to foreshadow how he ultimately uh, will will uh, try to kill Laura later on in the movie. Um, so then we get into actually meeting the women. Number one, Allison Ashmore. He calls Allison's mom and we find out that uh, instead of Kevin marrying Allison, Kevin killed Allison. This is where oh, no. he, as a madman... It's true. He doesn't get the satisfaction in this case, but this plants the seed. He's he's already a madman, but he doesn't maybe know what to do with his psychosis. But this tells him that this is an option for him because when he hears that on the phone, he feels such a tremendous sense of relief knowing that she's gone from the world and that like he feels like she deserves it. And this is how fate is supposed to work out. These these people are supposed to get killed. And so now he understands what he has to do for the remainder of his list. Um, number two is Penny. Uh, Rob gets together with Penny. They go to the music box theater and they go out to dinner afterward. And Penny tells Rob the exact same information about how Rob actually wronged her and not the other way around as Rob saw it. Um, she leaves and Rob follows her um, and kills her under the L in like a secluded alleyway area um, and gets his kind of first taste of it. It's a, maybe a messy uh, killing because he's new to the whole thing, but this is where we, we see him get his first blood. Um, we skip to number four because uh, he isn't ready for number three yet as, as is the case in the original movie. So we jump to Sarah. Uh, she is so willing to let Rob back into her life um, that he's able to kind of quietly, casually kill her in her own apartment since she clearly wants him to, to spend the night. This is a lot less messy. 
Um, and she even almost looks kind of, at least in Rob's head, peaceful after it's all over. Um, and he feels a little bit of remorse about it, but ultimately the relief, the like high of the relief that he felt with the others uh, gets to him and he, he needs to continue to rage on. Um, oh, I like it. If I were doing the, the soundtrack for your movie, I would put a Morrissey or Smith song ooh, over so the good. killing scene. That's so good. What about like Girlfriend in a Coma? That would be a fun one to throw in. Oh, yeah. The tonal difference would be a lot of fun. Yeah. Um, so what happened? Oh, so Rob catches the skate kids that are trying to steal from the store and chases them into the alley and beats them to a bloody pulp. Uh, but he does not kill them. They aren't the women who wronged him. And Rob is a sexist murderer. So even though these kids actually wronged him in a way that ought to be more significant to him, he doesn't view that as a murderable offense. It's a, it's emotional wrongdoing that, that Rob has to end lives over. Um. And I think that's important. Rob doesn't kill men unless they're involved in the uh, in the emotional wrongdoing, which we'll see shortly. But first, Rob has to sleep with Marie DeSalle. And she provides him with some genuinely good insight into what Rob's going through um, without knowing necessarily that he's been killing people. Um, so she seems to kind of understand that Rob... Uh, she understands Rob kind of better than he understands himself. Um, and he doesn't kill her, but their conversation in the morning really disturbs her quite a bit. She doesn't let on to her concern, but she, she does. She, we, as the, the audience definitely see that she understands sort of what might be going on in his head. Um, but she is allowed to live because she has not wronged him. Um, then we see that Ian is not given the same privilege as the skate kids because his wrongdoing in Rob's head is directly related to the ways in which other women have wronged him. Um, so this, the real crime is that he listens to world music. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm not going to disagree with that. Uh, the, the scene where we see, uh, Rob, imagining beating up Ian in the store is actually what happens. Um, so the, the Barry hitting or that happened, that was real. You could have, you could have fantasy scenes where he is very nice and polite to Ian. And then we cut to what really happened. <laughs> and he's like murdering him savagely. I like that. I like that too. In his brain, they just have a pleasant conversation. Rob agrees leave yeah. her alone and then Ian leaves and then we cut back and <laughs> Ian's a bloody heap of a mess on the floor. He's got half a record sticking out of his <laughs> neck. Oh, <laughs> uh, that's very good. Um, the the way Rob kills Ian I think is critical. Um, it, it, the, there's like a, there's a full like beating up scene and then it has to end with Rob throwing Ian unconscious onto the train tracks behind the store um and then the train kills him um rob will kill women Brutal. himself but he he gives men the quote-unquote dignity of not being killed by his own hand rob is clearly 
so much worse to women than he is to men. Um, then we get to number three on his list, Charlie, uh, who just had a similar run in with her ex Marco. So she kind of sees this coming. Um, there's a pretty brutal fight in, in Charlie's apartment. Um, and she comes really close to defeating him. Um, but he, uh, takes one of the many wine bottles that were in the apartment that have since shattered from the fight that ensued. And, um, that's he uses a, a broken shard from a wine bottle to to end her, but not before she really rubs it in in his face that he's weak and puts a hundred percent of his self worth into his relationships. Like she really lays it all out there for him. Ooh, I like that for Charlie. Yeah, she's she's much more experienced. She knows that this guy sucks, and she's had a recently a very similar uh, experience with Marco, so she's not putting up with this shit anymore. You could have, right? So if there's if they're scrapping on the floor, rolling around on the floor over all this broken glass, she's on top and then he stabs her and then as she falls more on the stabbing, right? She 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 can't hold herself up and she falls onto the shard of glass as she's really digging into him, the moment she like really drops the bomb on him she collapses on him and it's very sexy because it's like they're on the floor rolling around and then she's on top of him and then she's like she she finishes and collapses on him and the imagery is all sexy but then it's like it's really violent (laughs) you really are a horror fan (laughs) yeah i didn't know that death had to be this hot yeah, I mean, this is a high fidelity horror movie. Yeah, I think that's a, a disturbingly common thing in a lot of horror movies is how sexy the horror is. It's it's a weird thing to to want to sexualize violence that much, but it's pretty common. I think that checks out. It's. Did you see? Uh, did did either of you guys see Gone Girl? No, I know I need to. But I never no. did. I need to. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, there is a very orgasmic, bloody, killy sex scene <laughs> in that movie. It's fucking great. I'll add it to the list. Um, so, Laser Butt's dead. Yes. Um, so then we have the funeral, um, which is not for Laura's mom. It's for Ian. Uh, Rob attends this funeral trying to pretend that he's not responsible for Ian's death, but Laura is obviously suspicious. Uh, He leaves in the same fashion as he does in the original, and she follows him as she does in the original, finding him in the rain and um, inviting him into her car because she wants to confront him and and find out the truth. Um, He, after a long and, and... really disturbing conversation where he like full on reveals his psychosis. Um, He does admit it and then pulls a gun on her as was foreshadowed long, long ago. A very tense conversation follows in which Laura points out the tremendous flaw in Rob's reaction to his relationships um, and just his general approach to relationships in the first place. Um, to really drive home the whole point of like, this guy sucks. This guy is toxic. This guy is wrong. We cannot, should not, will not celebrate his approach 
to any of this, whether it's a metaphor or not, he's clearly in the wrong in a way that the original movie never pointed out. Um, and when the tension of this conversation reach, reaches its peak, we hear a gunshot. And from the exterior of the car, we see a splash of blood all over the windows, sort of like in Pulp Fiction. Um, and then cut back to inside the car and we see Rob slump forward with half of the head <laughs> missing. Um, revealing as he slumps that Marie and Barry are outside of the car in the pouring rain. Marie is holding a shotgun pointed directly at Rob. Um, so, so Barry, who had become suspicious, Marie, who had become suspicious, had worked out all, all along what had been going on and had to do something about it. And they saved Laura's life right at the end. Um, and then none of the stuff with Barry being in a, in a band, none of the stuff with Rob getting back together with Laura, that's all out the window. I love it. I also, I, I like the idea that, you know, as Rob is going through his kill list, there's somebody on his trail. Like you need that balance of cat and mouse uh, to, to really keep the thrills going. Yeah, there may be, there could be more with them where we see them kind of figuring things out. Um, I don't really know where they would probably be like brand new scenes that, that don't directly relate to the original, but. Well, yeah, his, um, his, their top five conversations could, some of the song choices could start to reveal that uh, Rob's more murderous and crazy. Well, maybe he has, like, you know, if you guys saw, I, I mean, we recently watched this for the podcast, Silver Linings Playbook, where Bradley Cooper starts to to lose his shit when uh, Stevie Wonder comes on. Like, if maybe uh, uh, John Cusack has, has, like, a top five kill song. <laughs> so if Barry accidentally kills one of the kill songs, it, it makes, makes him act crazy. Oh, that's yeah he keeps he'll just keep pitching top five recommendations that are all about killing or death or uh <laughs> i don't know we could get really dark like rape who knows where that where he draws that line all country songs <laughs> <laughs> got him <laughs> got him so I, i'm curious about something you as you've self-professed are not a horror fan, you don't like to be scared. How did it feel to write a horror pitch? Um, well, I, as but I, it pains me to say this used to be, this movie used to be so, so important to me and <laughs> watching it with a modern lens after not watching it for several years um, made me realize how, how awful it actually is in terms of just the social climate alone um, and how I, I probably shouldn't have celebrated it at the time that I did in the first place. Um, so it actually kind of flowed pretty easy with, with the modern lens to, to just enhance an already despicable character. It didn't, it, it it wasn't a struggle at all. I, it just was like, okay, he's going to kill these people instead of just being bad to them. Let's just make him a, a, a small hair worse than he already is. And it kind of <laughs> writes itself from that point forward. I thought I was going to really struggle to, to change a movie that I know inside and out and backward and forward 
and have celebrated for so long. But the the amount of distance I've I've put between this viewing and and the last time I saw it really let me look at it with a different different pair of eyes. I think you know what what you say about watching a movie that you used to like and 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 that sort of feeling differently about it and maybe feeling a little bit embarrassed that you liked it. I have totally had that experience before um, with the movie Brick with Joseph Gordon Levitt, where I was like, "Oh, this movie's so cute, cool, and clever," and now oh, they're doing a film noir, but it's in high school. Like, ah, oh, I like this, and then I showed it to someone. And the person I showed it to hated it. And rewatching the movie, I also realized how cringy it actually was. And I, I could not enjoy it at all like I did when I initially watched it. And I remain kind of embarrassed that I, I really liked that movie when I first saw it. Yeah. There's, there's I still so like re- You like Brick? There's something so revealing about showing something you like to somebody else who doesn't have, who doesn't share your opinion of it. And even if it's just whether they liked it or not, that's already like, like makes you like rethink your approach to it in the first place. But if they're able to point out how it's cringy at best or like actually awful at worst, then it's like you have to rethink where you like what was your time and place when you when you first fell in love with it you have to rethink if this is something you can allow yourself to still like despite knowing what you now know like you really have to rewire your brain a little bit when someone points that sort of thing out oh absolutely do you have a movie like that brett for you mm. no <laughs> You stand by everything you like. Uh, yeah, I, I like First what I time. like. I don't. <laughs> I I definitely get the idea of what a guilty pleasure movie is, mm-hmm. but I don't feel guilty for any of the movies that I like. Fuck them. <laughs> I don't care. <laughs> Fuck them. Uh, I yeah. I do like that too. Uh, I I feel like that is a that's a good thought to end on. So before we get into recommendations, our, our love bites, just want to tell the folks where you can find us. That would be on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, as well as email at necromancerpodcast at gmail.com. Is there anything you'd like to promote, Nick? Uh, places you want the people to find you or not find you? Oh, sure. I'll uh, I'll skip my, my personal ones, but... Um... I am in a band. We are called The Downhill Jam, um, at The Downhill Jam on Instagram. Uh, We are a cover band of all of the music from the Tony Hawk Pro Skater video game series. (laughs) I love it. uh, We we have uh, worked with Tony himself and performed with him and and done various stuff with him. So we, uh, we, we really do our best to put our money where our mouth is and not just be a cover band, but like really uh, help, help Tony help the the skate park project, which is his um, charity foundation to bring. Did you see that he landed a seven twenty the I other day? I did see that. I did see that. It yeah, was at 52 years it old. It was a lot of very difficult work for him. Um, 
Yeah, it's, Bird, it's impressive. He's though. still got it. We we most uh, he still got we, it. We most recently in in connection to to movies, uh, we got to play at the um, after party for the premiere of the uh, documentary called "Pretending I'm a Superman," uh, which is a documentary about the video game series. Um, and so uh, it was at a film festival in Mammoth Mountain and. Uh, Tony and a bunch of other actors and whatnot were were doing this uh, after party bowling thing, and so we performed in a bowling alley in a snowy mountain town with uh, Tony Hawk and Dennis Rodman and um, uh, uh, what's his name, Mister White from Reservoir Dogs. Um, oh yeah, Harvey Keitel. Uh, sorry, not Mister White. Mister um, Mister mm. Blonde. Mister Blonde. Oh yeah, Michael, Michael Madsen, Madsen. That's his name. Uh, and Draco Malfoy was there. Oh, it was a it was a real weird experience, and that was that was the most recent thing that we got to do before COVID shut out down. together. It was uh, that was that was very fun, um, and hopefully someday when the world reopens, we'll get to do some more stuff with them again. So that's the only thing I would plug. And what was the name of the band again? The Downhill Gang? The Downhill Jam. We're named after a... Downhill Jam. That's really cool. I like that as a concept for a cover band because you're not limited to having to play just one artist's music. Uh, And then I feel like the curation for the Tony Hawk games has always been really solid. So I think that's an awesome concept. There's there's a fun amount of variety and... Um, there's also so many games and each subsequent game had more music in it than the previous one. So there's a library that we'll never be able to complete. Plus there's the new one that came out last year. That's got a bunch of new stuff in it. So plenty of variety. And, uh, but we tend to play the ones that everybody remembers from the first couple of the games primarily. That makes sense. Well, that's awesome. Well, let's go ahead and get into Love Bites. Nick, is there anything you'd like to recommend to our listeners? There is. Um, adult Lego sets. As in, not like adult-like sexual, but adult-like they're complicated <laughs> for kids to do. Uh, I recently completed a 1,771-piece uh, Yoda, which took me a total of... Whoa six ish hours to to do um after not doing a lego set for i don't know probably 20 to 25 years i'm not sure how long it's been um but it was one of the most satisfying things i've done in a very long time because it's not hard it's just time consuming but you get this end product at the end where you have touched every single piece to make it exist and it's like you can kind of turn your brain off and just snap the pieces together and it's just it's very zen and if it ends up being a a specific set of something that's something you love which lego has a wide variety of different um you know licensed products that they have then you you get the added bonus of having a cool thing to display at the end so highly recommend it 
That sounds like a lot of fun. That definitely sounds like the perfect pandemic activity. It's great. We've we've been doing a lot of puzzles, um, which is is good enough. But like, unless you buy a frame and have a lot of free wall space, you don't get to really hang on to that. You have to crumple it up and put it back in the box. Um, so after doing, I don't even know, three, four, five puzzles like back to back, I I bought that Lego set, and that's the only thing that I've constructed that still stands in a way isn't that more zen though because it's it you don't have the materialistic thing at the end you do it and then it's done and then it's gone i like material it's there for a short amount of time um i i agree with that premise but i also i buy or at least i used to buy uh lots of action figures and things that stay in their boxes and just go up on display. So uh, I like having things that I can display, but it's even more nice to display something that uh, you had to put some time and effort into uh, as opposed to just buying and putting on a shelf. There's a little more satisfaction to it than that. So it's, it's somewhere between a puzzle and an action figure, which both of those two sides of the spectrum are great. Why not have the middle be even better? I like it. I like it too. What about you, Brett? What do you want to recommend this week? Well, so I just got that sweet, sweet PS4. And uh, I I beat God of War, which was a freaking great game. That was quick. Yeah. Well, I, last we talked, I was pretty much all the way through it. So... Uh, it took me probably about a month or so to, to casually work my way through the game. The- uh, no, it's the fourth God oh. of War where he's in Norse mythology. Oh, where he has a big beard. It's so good, man. Yeah, yeah it's so good. Uh, but so now I have to move on to a bunch of the other games that I haven't played, right? I got to play all the Batman Arkham games. I've got to play the Spider-Man game, Last of Us 2. There's this Neo, near, not Neo, but near Autumn game that seems like it'd be right up my alley. But I'm like, I want something different, right? And what's a better different game than Shadow of the Oh, Colossus? baby, you're thinking oh, oh, yeah. <laughs> So going back to high school Nick Bricknet era days, I remember playing Shadow of the Colossus on PS2, mm-hmm. and because that was like a, that was a bigger game at the time than their first game. But I remember playing Shadow of the Colossus, and I was like, "Holy shit, this game's amazing!" And then Nick was like, "Boy, do I have a treat for <laughs> you!" And this was back when you could like give people a CD or a dvd or a game and he gave me ico to play through oh, i loved it was like wow yeah ico holy crap i wish i wish ps4 had an ico that you could buy but i'm going through shadow of the colossus right now so i can play last guardian wrap up my team ico trilogy that whole series shadow of the is colossus. my all-time favorite franchise if you could call it a franchise i don't know but it's it is easily right my favorite video game uh, lore that, that I've ever experienced. It's so They're good. beautiful and games. Yeah. If there's one, if, if there's one thing that I could spotless mind myself and wipe all memories of just so I could experience it for the first time again, shadow of the Colossus would be in that top Truly. five. Cause 
There is never, you never get that experience back of truly figuring of that shock and awe of like, oh my God, there's this giant thing in front of me. How am I going to defeat it? And then working through that grueling process of defeating it. Uh, I'm playing through the game now and I'm like, you know, it's got the better graphics and stuff, which looks just, it just looks creepy. That uncanny valley. I like the sort of lower res version, you know, because it had more artistic style, but uh even though i know how to beat all of them it's been years since i played it but i still remember every single colossus the game does do a really good job of like at the end when you finally kill it of like yes but also like oh so it's a great game shadow of the colossus i can't wait to get into that's a game that that points out that rescuing the damsel in distress is maybe not a thing you should be doing uh oh. Uh oh. Yeah, no, I, 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 I really like those those games and that game company. The Last Guardian was in development for what felt like a decade. Yeah. Uh, I, I still haven't played it yet. Um, but yeah, no, I think those are both incredible wrecks. Uh, for my part, I, I can't believe I didn't bring this up earlier. But while watching High Fidelity. I did think about a show that did a unlikable fourth wall breaking female protagonist, and I think did it exceptionally well. And that would be the show Fleabag on Amazon. Uh, I would recommend this to anyone who is looking for that type of character executed perfectly, but a woman Fleabag. I don't even know if Fleabag has a real name. For all intents and purposes, we're going to call her Fleabag. She's kind of this promiscuous London woman, and she's also suffering from grief that, you know, the series gets into as you follow her character. But it's also a really incredibly funny show. It's very cynical in its humor. Um, But I think that it's also incredibly well written uh, and has a very satisfying romantic arc or unrequited love romantic arc in I think it's either the second or the third season when Fleabag meets a hot priest. And when I tell you the internet was a flame over this hot priest, um, it just, you don't even know the half of it, but uh, yeah, I think it's a really good show. And if you're looking for the true female version of Rob Fleabag. I've heard that's great. I, I don't, I, I never really knew much about it. I haven't really investigated anything about it, but I have, I've never heard a bad word about that show. Yeah. It's really well done. The the woman who wrote it and stars in it, I think her name is Phoebe Waller Bridger or Bridge. She wrote that and she wrote Killing Eve. So she's already got an a, an amazing batting average when it comes to movies and TV. I'll add it to the list. That one's next. We're working our way through Pen 15 right now, which uh we had never seen and it is so good. Oh, it's hilarious and entirely too relatable. So relatable. <laughs> and I think for men too, I think it's it's like there's so much that they go through that maybe like I I don't very directly relate to. Like I never got a first period, but I a lot of what they experience is cross gender. It's very it's just what being, you know, twelve or thirteen is like. It's really, really well done. 
No, I definitely agree with that. Well, Nick, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you. This was very fun. All right, guys. Well, that's all for today. Smell you later. Necromancer is produced by Brett Dorman and Shira Moore. The theme song is Symphonia 3 by Kevin McLeod on the album Oddities.